Welcome to another great episode of Politics and Pints, our third interview in the series of interviewing presidential candidates. I am honored today to be joined by author, lecturer, and entrepreneur Marianne Williamson. Marianne, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. How's it going? Really cool. How are you liking New Hampshire so far? I like it very much. Excellent. So you're running for president. <coughs> And you run for office before. That's actually um, when you first came on my radar. Mm -hmm. 2014, you ran for Congress. Yeah. And uh, did you run as an independent or a Democrat? I did. You ran Very as naive choice, I must say. Well, you came on my radar because um, a mutual friend, Dennis Kucinich, uh -huh. big supporter of yours, yeah. was tweeting about you, was talking about you. So, um, you know, anything Dennis says, I pay attention. Thank you. Because as you know, he's a great guy. Well, and I pay attention too. A rare, honest thing in politics, an actual human being with a soul who didn't sell out. So when he started talking about you, I got really interested in who you were and your background. And now, you know, here we are, six years later, you're running for president. So what lessons did you learn from that campaign that you're applying <coughs> now in your run for president? I read a play by uh, someone named Mike Dugan, and there was a line that really struck me, which was, I laughed at who I should have listened to, and I listened to who I should have laughed at. A political campaign is a strange animal, very different than the kind of sector that I'm used to. And, um, you know, I, I, Barack Obama lost to Bobby Rush by 30 points in his first congressional race. I see a first congressional race as kind of like the political equivalent of many people's first marriage. You know, it's like, oops. <laughs> like a starter marriage. It's a starter. <laughs> yeah, starter. It's a starter. It's a starter. Yeah. But I think you learn from failure, just like you learn from success if you're open to it. I read a book by Ray Dalio called Principles. And he said something that meant a lot to me. He said, if you're going to live a meaningful life, you're going to take some risks. And if you take some risks, you're probably going to fail at some point. But if you fail, he said, fail well. That meant a lot to me. I like to think I failed well. I think the only thing you ultimately fail at is something you didn't learn from. And I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. I um, feel that the message of that campaign, which is definitely included in the message of this campaign, I was right about it. I just didn't know anything about political campaigns. That's all. Yeah, getting in with one of the parties, uh, was that kind of the decision you were thinking when you were like, I got, I got to hitch my wagon, it's probably going to be the Democratic Party? Well, no, or I ran as an independent. Well, no, I'm saying for this campaign, so learning well, from running as an independent, they don't give you a lot of coverage, the press doesn't, and, and, and they, you get treated a lot differently. Well, I wouldn't say that the Democratic Party is treating me that differently well, this time. Yeah. But, but what has changed is Donald Trump. With Donald Trump president, I wouldn't do anything in this campaign to risk taking even 10 votes away from the Democratic nominee in uh, 2020. I see the issues of the two parties, and there certainly are issues, as two broken legs and two broken arms. But I see the agenda of the Trump presidency as more like a, a bullet near the heart. This is not the moment to play with any of that. Mm -mm. Not for me. No matter who the nominee is, whether it's me or anyone else, I'm full in. Yeah. So before this campaign, um, had you met any of the people you're running against now? I mean, we have such a wide, big right. field of candidates, right. um, very diverse group, which is awesome, which is great to see. I agree um, with you. I think it's healthy for the Democratic Party. I think it's healthy for our democracy. These people who are so upset about it, I think it's great. I think this is an all-hands-on-deck all type of moment. Anybody have any good ideas, bring them on. And so right. I, think, I think it's very exciting. I don't think of myself as running against anyone. Mm -hmm. I think of myself as running with a lot of really good, smart people. The one I had met in response to your question was Bernie. I had met Bernie. You met Bernie before? Yeah. And <clears throat> what was your takeaway from Bernie? I, I love Bernie. I'm a big supporter of Bernie. I always have been a big supporter of Bernie. I, uh, he spoke at my two sister giant conferences. And I know that a lot of people say, well, if you're such a supporter of Bernie, why are you running? And why don't you get 
out of the race right now. Bernie feels moved in his heart to run. He should run. I feel I feel moved in my heart to run, and, and therefore you, I should. You know who's getting that a lot is Tulsi Gabbard, yes, who we, we sat down with last time, and as we know, in 2016, Tulsi showed real courage and leadership, broke from the DNC, resigned, you know, in lieu of all the corruption, and, and basically tipping the thing for Hillary anointing her. So, I mean, right now, are, are you getting any communication from Tom Perez and anyone from the DNC? How, how are you getting treated by them? What's going on with that right well, now? Well, I'm certainly not getting any communication directly, but indirectly, all the candidates are getting communication, and that communication, I feel, is unfortunate. Once again, not just for myself, for all candidates. We're having to worry about things like get those 65,000 unique donors so we can be on the debate stage because they're only going to let 10 on one night and 10 on the other. My feeling about that is all of that energy that we've had to spend, and yes, I've gotten my 65,000. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All of that energy is time that we could have been, spe been spending and that I think we should be spending talking to voters about the issues that face this country at this critical moment. And my feeling is, so what? So you put 11 on the stage. So there's 23 of us. Why should it? And it also pits us against each other in ways that are unnecessary. So I've got the 65,000. Now there's another who, because it's more than 20 who have those qualifications. Then we have to have uh, at least 1% in, in three national polls. But how are you going to get uh, listed on a poll if they haven't even been using your name when they call people? So we've got Fox and we've got CNN, but now I need one more. Um, so no, he has not. He has not directly spoken to me or to my campaign. But that's a pretty indirect, but unfortunately significant communication. Uh, one area that you seem to stand out uh, uh, compared to the other candidates is uh, prison reform and um, uh, you know rehabbing people who are who have been incarcerated for a long time. Um, what's your what are your feelings on where that's going right now in the well, country? Well, we obviously know, or I think we should know, <clears throat> that the prison industrial complex is real. It's not just hyperbole. Mass incarceration is one of the most immoral aspects of the way we function politically and economically today. We know about the profound racial disparity in criminal sentencing. Now, uh, Jared Kushner and um, Van Jones have done a good job. It's a good beginning of the conversation in terms of uh, getting people out who shouldn't be there to begin with, or at the very least should not have the long prison sentences that they have. Right. But we need to, uh, that needs to just be the beginning of the conversation because we also have to talk about what happens on the front end, namely, well, many issues, but one having to do with the laxer standards for police engagement, particularly in high crime neighborhoods and in more uh, uh, economically uh, uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods. So if a policeman is driving through a, a wealthy white neighborhood, it has to have a real good, re real good uh, reason to stop somebody's car. Right. But in other yeah. neighborhoods, the Supreme Court has given them permission to <clears throat> come up with pretty lax standards for why they stopped that car. All the way back, of course, to the terrible economic conditions, the economic disparity between the one percent and the, you know, when you when you have one percent of all the people in the United States owning more wealth than the bottom ninety percent, then that means that it means what we have, which is forty percent of all Americans who are struggling just to make ends meet. Those kinds of economic conditions contribute to the kind of societal dysfunction that then uh, results in 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 crime and and violence and all manner of things, some of which should land a person in prison and some of which I think should not land a person in prison. Are you familiar with um, uh, Sirhan Sirhan, the accused assassin of RFK in his case? Um, so we came up on the 50th anniversary of the uh, death of Bobby Kennedy last year and um, Sirhan's story has been in, I guess you could call it alternative media. I mean, I've been paying attention to it. and. Um, 
there's evidence that has come to light that there may have been another shooter or you know he may have been set up and actually when Kamala Harris was AG of California in 2012 she very strongly was a, you know wanted to shut that evidence out and uh, I was just wondering if you were what your thoughts were on that I've always looked at Sirhan a little bit like I've looked at Lee Harvey Oswald I've always felt a little bit of yeah right sure yeah this guy was working in the kitchen happened to be be a, pa a Palestinian uh, uh, activist and wanted to shoot Bobby Kennedy. That never felt, that yeah. always got an eye roll from me. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, share this book with yeah, you. I this is I uh, the specifics, but great book by Lisa Peace, uh, who's a uh, author and researcher. She spent 25 years working on this. Now, how is the Kennedy? I know that Coretta Scott King had wanted to reopen the case uh, about the assassination of her uh, husband. Has the Kennedy family wanted this to be reopened? Yeah, RFK Jr. is actually a really big uh, proponent of Lisa's work, mm -hmm. and it was actually the author of this book that introduced Bobby Kennedy with mm -hmm. Sirhan. Right. For they, they met for the first time Bobby last Kennedy year. Jr. Bobby Kennedy Sirhan? went to meet with Sirhan and said that I believe there's evidence that would potentially free you from prison. It's pretty, yeah, it's really explosive stuff, and it's not really being reported on by oh. the media. Thank you for uh, telling me. I look forward to reading it. Pretty much anything about Bobby Kennedy I'm interested. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, we kind of need more of that leadership. It's seriously lacking, you know, right now in our country, in our government, in our electoral process. Um, so, I mean, going a little bit back in your career, obviously for a lot of people, your, your big moment in rise to national promise was when Oprah ordered a thousand of your books yeah, um, onto her, and had you on her show um, and, and basically promoted your work and, and, and the message you were speaking about. So have you had any conversations with Oprah since you've announced? Has she been pretty supportive of your campaign? I have not had a conversation with her. I uh, informed her, but I haven't had a conversation with her. Well, Oprah, you should have Marianne on. That would be great. Yeah, my mother would say your mouth to God's ears. Oprah's <laughs> ears, God's ears. So how are you finding treatment from the media of your campaign overall and your message? I mean... Well, I'm very grateful to people like yourself because you represent the kind of local media that really makes it happen in a grassroots campaign. We're getting there, but it's like the little engine that could. I got my CNN town hall. Um, you know, I have been on some MSNBC shows. It's funny, just this morning I was scheduled to be on one of the MSNBC shows. Then it got bumped, and I noticed I'm getting dressed and I'm watching. And that very show that had bumped me is having a show about the 2020 candidates, and oh. they're not mentioning me. So, They're probably too busy promoting a war with yeah. Iran, mm. Tucker Carlson. Well, and you know, I don't want to get stuck in a victim mode or a poor me mode. It's not like that, but uh, this is the way America works, folks. Yeah, you just got to get up, you know, put yourself out there for people, and I think this is really the new frontier for, for media. A lot of the traditional media is kind of dying out. Well, that's the thing. I, that's the thing. I, and, and what you're saying is very significant because if, if you look at people such as yourself, I mean, we, we don't, the, the, day, the gatekeepers are not what they once were. On the other hand, they do affect the ethers. They affect the ethers. People who like to think that they're not swayed by propaganda are swayed by very insidious propaganda mm -hmm. in oh, ways sure. that they themselves do not realize. And then that, if, you know, if you have enough major media uh, calling you a long shot, then people think you're a long shot, which then keeps them from giving the money they might otherwise give, which then means you have less money to be out there, which means you're a long shot. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. There is a club. There is an establishment, a political and media establishment. These are the, this is the establishment that brought us into this ditch. So the idea that they're the only people who can bring us, uh, yeah. present us a candidate qualified to lead us out of the ditch, obviously I would not be running if I agreed with that. Right. And now it's up to the American people. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's interesting when you see even President Trump being interviewed on Fox News over the weekend saying 
Look, there's the, the military industrial complex is running the show, okay? It's the truth. I can't, I can't even get into it that much, but it's what's going on. Oh, but meanwhile, he's, meanwhile <laughs> he is nominating Patrick Shanahan, who yep. is a 30-year executive at Boeing, Boeing. but so Trump said... Look, Marianne, I'm training God. the swamp by filling it with yeah. swamp on steroids. It's an ocean of corruption. Swamp it's on steroids. Swamp. But it's like he's got guys like Mike Pompeo, who, you know, are cheerleading for Iran and Venezuela, and John yeah, Bolton. That, there was the CEO of ex-CEO of Exxon. Oh, Tillerson. Oh, Rex, oh, Rex Tillerson, yeah. yeah. So it's so so there's obviously some forces in place that even I think are, are go beyond Trump that have been embedded for a long time. Right. And that kind of speaks to what you were saying about the media. And I think it can also apply to government and, and the, and the well, admin state. In terms of the military industrial complex, of course, the very term was phrased by Eisenhower, yeah. who had been the supreme uh, allied commander in World War II. So he certainly knew what he was talking about. And when he left the presidency, it was in 1961 that he gave that speech. Yeah. And yeah. these problems have been building up decade after decade. Boy, was after he decade. right on the money about that warning? Sure Basically, that was kind of like a looking right at JFK, too, yeah. saying, hey, Kennedy, yeah, you, you know what you're walking into, little, little guy? You know? Well, and that goes back to Bobby Kennedy, <laughs> well, exactly. who said that if my brother had lived, he would have withdrawn our troops from Vietnam. Many people, t I mean, there's, I there's a lot the of theorizing about all of that. Yeah, they killed both of the Kennedy brothers, in my opinion. They were, they were too dangerous for, for the uh, eternal war state and the powers that be, and, and they, they got rid of them, you know, because I think, like you said, we would have had a different outcome had they lived with Vietnam and, and uh, you know, foreign well, policy. I don't know. I don't know. There, there's some logic there I'm not sure I would follow because um, Kennedy was followed by Lyndon Johnson, yeah. and Lyndon Johnson certainly built up, <laughs> certainly oh, he, built up the war in Vietnam. The Gulf of so Tonkin ratchet, they ratcheted I, I'm right not sure some. I'm not sure about that. Like I said, Bobby argues that JFK would have taken... Uh, I, I, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, well, but historians argue about it. So, looking at um, Donald Trump, like on a personal level, I know your background is a lot in spiritual work and, and looking at the whole human. I mean, what's wrong with Donald Trump and, and your assessment? Well, I don't know, but I read the same books everybody else reads. I watch the same man on television everybody else is watching. And words like narcissist and sociopath certainly come up for me. But I'm not claiming to diagnose him. Uh, I'm just trying to defeat him at the polls. Right. Uh, I don't think uh, really the psychiatric labeling is what's so important as his agenda is what's important. And his agenda is in opposition to some of the fundamentals of American democracy. So whether he is a wonderful person or whether he's got some serious psychiatric issues, I don't believe he should be president. Now, if you were president, um, would you do what Trump has done and meet with Chairman Kim of North Korea? I can't fault him for that. I cannot fault him for that. Um, this is too serious an issue for us to get partisan and play politics. Mm -hmm. And if, to some extent, human interaction was helpful, uh, I can't fault him for that. No, I cannot fault him for that. Yeah, it's a good thing to, to talk to anyone, whether they are perceived enemies Absolutely. or, or they this idea that we're not going to give someone the, the prize of allowing them to meet with us unless they do something, mm -hmm. that wasn't working. Right. I mean, Un, you know, he's, he has to deal with all the other countries on the, you know, on the global stage. And, and I and, think uh, when Kim Jong-un at this last meeting in Hanoi actually wanted to play, gave him a framework. I don't know why he didn't. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to fault him for that one. Certainly. Uh, what, what would you do about Iran? Well, first of all, I think it was a grave error to uh, take ourselves out of the Iran deal. And that's, that's number one. And number two, this last round of, of, uh, of sanctions with refusing those exemptions, we're squeezing them and squeezing them and squeezing them. All evidence leads us to believe that they were in fact complying. And so I think too, too often Americans, I think sanctions is a perfect example, just the word. And this applies to Iran as well as to Venezuela. 
And this actually goes back to the fact that the media doesn't do much in terms of real foreign correspondence anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I fear that the average American does not understand what the word sanctions means on a practical level, what it does to people's lives. And you know, the old-fashioned thinking is, well, if we put sanctions on Iran, it's going to make it so hard for the people of Iran that they're going to rise up against the Iranian government. If we put sanctions on Venezuela, it's going to make things so tough for the people of Venezuela that they're going to rise up against the government of Venezuela. I, at what point, you know, this is one of the things where the private sector and politics is different. And the private sector gets, if it's not working, stop it. If it's not working, try something new. Right. With politics, it's not working, and they do it for another 10 years, and then they do it for another 10 years because it's this ideological conviction. So I think if the American people really saw the honest truth about the role of, of the United States, what it meant that we, that we uh, came out of the agreement, what it meant, particularly with this last round of exemptions, the fact that now, uh, now um, Trump is saying, Iran, call me. Now, you know you're in trouble. You know, you know you're in trouble when the leaders of Iran are actually making more sense than the leader of the United States on any issue whatsoever. Well, they're saying, why should we believe him? They reneged, the United States reneged on the last deal. Why would right. we, and now we want this go alone, bully, you know, Trump says, I want to make a deal with you. And they're saying in a way that is not unreasonable, why would we trust you this time when you reneged last time? That's kind of the, the thing that Tulsi Gabbard has been talking about, because her campaign yeah. really emphasized on foreign policy. Right. And she said, why in the hell would these countries like North Korea and Iran trust America to work with them when they, we saw what they did with Gaddafi when he gave up the She's nukes? She's absolutely correct. You know, and, and yep. saw what we did in Iraq with Saddam Hussein. Right. So those are just kind of counterintuitive yeah. measures. And she, first of all, she's uh, I agree with her on that. And second of all, the saber rattling. You know, I'm old enough that I remember Vietnam. So when they started all the saber rattling about Iraq, I was one of those people. Oh my God, it's the same thing over again. And they were saying, Oh, that's very facile. No, it's not. Well, now the way they've been talking about Venezuela and Iran in the last few weeks, it's, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same. It's like a, a, re a nightmare that repeats itself. So my hope is that the American people will be awake this time. And my entire campaign is based on the notion that the American people must wake up. And also the American people might consider that Iran has one of the most powerful armies in the world. Yeah, the place is a fortress. I, I say to people all the time, you think Iran, you think Iraq went well? Yeah. Do you think Vietnam went well? Right. This idea that we're still being fed that, oh, the American military can go in there, we can handle this. Um, it's got, it, it leads to, and will lead to tragic consequences if there's not a mass political awakening in the United States, and that's why I'm running. So one thing I like about your platform, and this reminds me, could be a page out of Dennis Kucinich's book, A Department of Peace. Yes, Who and it is a page out of his book, by yeah. the way, and literally. Bravo to you. I think Thank that's you. beautiful. I think that's brilliant, and we need to move in that direction. Could, would uh, Dennis be your first Secretary of Peace? Well, Who, nice. Who do you have in mind? Well, I, there, there are many issues. Uh, Secretary of State, I have somebody in mind. EPA, I have somebody in mind. Uh, I hadn't actually thought yet about who, who would be the first uh, Department of Peace Secretary. Uh, when it comes to the issue of peace building, I'm, I'm in many preliminary issues. First of all, when you have a $718 billion military budget, but you have a $40 billion State Department budget, mm. And the peace-building agencies within the State Department get less than a billion dollars. The USAID, which has so much to do because of humanitarian aid with peace-building, gets about 17 billion. For me, first of all, you'd have a far beefed up uh, State Department budget. Because you can't just take medicine, you have to cultivate health. 
You can't just back your way into to war. You can't just endlessly prepare for war and back yourself uh, into peace, I mean. We have to consciously and proactively wage peace. So I want a far more robust uh, partnership between state and defense. I want far beefed up peace-building agencies, peace-building agencies that, that provide the factors that we know actually statistically increase peace and decrease violence, increasing economic opportunities for women, decreasing violence against women, ex expanding e uh, educational opportunities for children, and ameliorating unnecessary suffering wherever possible. Because desperate people should be seen as a national security risk. Desperate people are more vulnerable to ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces. Now, I have thought in terms of beefing up the international peace-building efforts within the State Department and then creating a United States Department of Peace to deal with peace-building here. Now, on one hand, the, the same kind of peace-building, and peace-building is as sophisticated and as specific a skill set as is waging war. On one hand, you could say, well, some of these skill sets are the same, whether it's in the Congo or East Los Angeles, but some of them are different. So the way I'm thinking now, internationally, you build up the peace-building agencies that already exist. Domestically, uh, we have a Department of Peace. And by the way, I just want to say, in case there's any question in anyone's mind, this is not a critique of the military. Right. I mean, I think we all, you know, I look at the military like you'd look at a surgeon. If you have to have surgery, you won't have the best, yeah, you yeah. but you avoid surgery if at all possible. Well, there's, there's no military in the world that could come near the United States military. It's, it's just, that's, I just think that's better thinking, it's forward thinking, and it's an avenue I'd like to see us go down, so I really hope... Well, it's kind of win. like cancer. Not all cancer, not all cancer is operable. Not, not, you know, you could look at the Nazis during World War II, at the Japanese Imperial Army. They were like operable tumors that could be and were brilliantly surgically removed. Many of the problems today are more like cancer that is already metastasized. You can't just cut out every problem. You have to get to root causes. You have to apply a more holistic, integrative approach. You have to boost the immune system. That's what peace building does. It boosts the immune system. And it has proven over and over again to cost so much less in money and time and treasure to actually build human relationships rather than have to come in on the other end and meet the conflicts and inevitably arise with more conflict. So this is the conversation. We need a more integrative approach to politics the way we've already taken a more integrative approach to health. That's, uh, that's great. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. And uh, that's about all the time we have for today. So um, yeah, thank you, Mary. And we wish you well you. in your campaign. Thank and you I really so hope much. to see you on that debate stage. Thank you. you know, this message belongs up there. Thank and, you. and I wish you well in the campaign. Thank you. So thank you for watching, everybody. And please click that subscribe button. Tell your friends, share. Check out Marianne Williams' website. What's your website, Marianne? Marianne2020.com or MarianneWilliamsonForPresident.com. All go to the same place. It's Just find me. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you next time with Politics and Pints on Jackman Radio. <laughs> Cheers, Marianne. Thank, thank you. you. Now I'll take my beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.